Welcome back, everybody, to the Spicy PL Podcast. This is Alex Baval here with Big Joe Cap, yep. Big Peachy Boy James Marcotte, and we've got a very special guest, the president of the USAPL, Mr. Larry Maley. Thank you for joining us. All the way from Thank Alaska. You. What's going on? Yeah, same old thing here. <laughs> That's good. Um, you know, so uh, thanks for joining us, obviously. I. I didn't think you would ever agree to be on our podcast since it's, you know, it's been kind of silly and fun. Um, but I think it's been going good. And, you know, last week we got Carl on and, um, that was great. So we're kind of like really hitting it, hitting the jackpot with our guests lately and getting better every week. So, you know, stepping up with Larry this week. So we're just going to jump into some, some, uh, some juicy questions. Um, well, I wanted to ask, have you listened to any of the episodes, Larry? Have I listened to what? And any of our episodes? Have you listened to any of the podcast? No, I haven't. Oh man. Okay. So, so that's why he agreed to come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Big Mike was like, Hey, have you considered having Larry on? And I go, I don't think he would. And he was like, Yeah, he would. And I was like, damn, he might listen. But now we're disappointed. Well, you know Joe and and you know his <laughs> what his persona and his uh, MO is. Yeah, but so he he must have had yep. some sort of idea into what he was getting. Larry's into. managed to keep me out of trouble for twelve years, so it's been good. Oh. That's a small miracle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess yeah. I, I'm okay with all of this. I've been interviewed by some people I have not necessarily wanted to be. Um, Do we fall in that category? Now time will tell. <laughs> um, but I, I I was on Tucker Carlson. Um, I was interviewed by Alex Sports and NBC Vice. Cool. Uh, wow. Usually around some of our more controversial issues, so I figure this will be easy. Yeah, you made um, some good news last year after the uh, NGB meeting, but um, Alex actually did some research on you know stuff people don't talk about you about, but um, your personal lifting accolades. And, uh, you know, what we came up with was the 1989 Lifetime Drug-Free National Champion, um, 1989 third place at Nationals. I'm assuming that was equipped Nationals. And then uh, yes. 2000 IPF Masters Worlds. Did you win that one? I did. Awesome. Um, there's other ones. when uh, It seemed like 2012, 2015, 2016, you did a couple of raw Nats. And then NAPA, NFPF, NAPF, sorry, Raw Masters. Um, so, I mean, obviously one of her questions is when are you going to come back to single ply? Um, I don't have any of my equipment anymore, but um, I, I think Priscilla has one of my band shirts somewhere, but um, I don't know, sometime maybe. I um, think uh, you could get some equipment from one of our, you know, Federation sponsors, don't you think? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, the, the reason I did raw basically over that period of years from from 2012 forward um, really was time related. Um, with with the other things I do, I, I really had very limited time in the gym, and and so it was easier just to go in and, and train raw and be done with it. And yeah, yeah, you're, was, you're a busy guy. Coaching. I was coaching a number of people at that time. In fact, um, full teams of people, and my training was sort of the first twenty 
the 30 minutes at the beginning and that was all of it. So, yeah, I feel you. Um, and we were curious, you know, I remember 12 years ago, you know, when I first got into the sport in 2008, there were still lifetime drug free meets or at least a lifetime drug free division. Um, Yes. And, you know, obviously 1989, you were the lifetime drug-free national champion. We were kind of curious of what that exactly meant in 1989. And, you know, my what I thought of it is that you've never competed outside of USAPL. Um, but maybe you can explain that a little bit more because – Or ADFPA. But um, we were kind of curious of what that meant back then and, you know, why it's not a thing anymore. Well, there, there are really a couple of reasons why we discontinued it. The, the purpose of it um, and Brother Ben's initial philosophy in terms of forming the ADFPA um, was not just to have an outlet for people um, who never had used anything, um, but to have an outlet for everybody. And his, his mission was really to clean up the sport. Um, and, and by 1989, it was really relatively successful with that endeavor. Um, so, uh, a number of the people who were at the top of our game at that point, um, were all lifetime athletes, but we had two nationals and there was sort of some conflict about which was the real one. The other issue was in 1989 and up until we discontinued the lifetimes, um, our drug testing was by polygraph. And, and so, uh, we focused extensively on person's history and drug testing. Mm -hmm. um, rather than doing a, a drug test um, that was a snapshot of of you chemically at the time. Yeah. Um, we so when we discontinued polygraph, the the opportunity to test people for being lifetime clean disappeared as well. Um, so those those are the reasons we kind of discontinued it. At the same time, we were growing. Um, in terms of other things, our collegiates became more successful, our high schools grew, um, our bench division grew, and, and so we had a really pretty hectic schedule um, across the year, and that was the one that went. Yeah. Um, that's pretty interesting about the polygraph testing. Um, you know, I've w watched a documentary about the accuracy of that that type of testing, like, do you remember what the positive rate was? And do you, like, personally, do you think that that was successful at the time? At the time it was, and um, we had a, a sort of a polygraph bureau at that time of people who, who um, worked for intelligence agencies. Hmm. And, and those people were um, extremely good at what they did. Um, the, the interesting thing and, and we had sort of lengthy debates about polygraphy and its accuracy. Um, and, and there are some people who are very good at it, and there are some people who are not very good at it. And when you expand the pool of people doing that testing, you get all comers, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so for some people, it was not very effective. Um, but for the people who are very good at it, and it's still utilized in the intelligence field, um, they're very accurate. And I'd imagine, you know, there was no internet back then and people looking up how, how to beat a polygraph test and there was no documentaries really about it. So the intimidation factor was probably much higher for someone going in. They'd probably not be as willing to even try to beat it. 
So I think that's true to some degree. And I have to tell you that having been polygraphed multiple times um, over the early parts of my career, um, that those were scary people doing those tests. Um, and so if, if you weren't intimidated coming in, you would be shortly after they started. Yeah. Uh, man, I'd love to see that come back. Yeah. But I'm sure there's, we, you would get sued <laughs> well, no, promptly. They do it in, they do it in natural bodybuilding federations. They still do polygraph tests mm. for, for a lot of natural bodybuilding competitions because you know, you can't, you can't test for two years ago, really. I mean, well, that, that's what I think is that someone in the USAPL can pass an in meat test. Um, and you know, our out of meat testing is extensive, but you know, it could always be, have more coverage, but I wonder if, uh, you know, polygraph would cover the past as well as the present. I think it's probably hard. It's probably easier for them to fight the polygraph test. Yeah. If they, if they want to protest. The yeah. Larry, do you test. think that's just like a slippery slope? Um, probably so because it's not the standard in the field at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was more so earlier and, and now, um, in terms of defensive, we re rely really on the science of the labs and, and honestly, our job is, is to do a sufficient amount of testing, um, and to target the right people to, to make that testing defensible. So it, it probably would be difficult to restart it, I think, yeah. and, and probably difficult to defend in some ways i think too yeah it seems like you know obviously the testing technology has improved so much recently um but there's you know there's still probably cheaters out there i think not too many in the usapl um like what do you think are the biggest challenges to trying to keep keep us clean uh i mean i know cost is the huge one but um you know like what, like, what do you see as being improvements to the system and, and what challenges there are? Well, I, it, the, the primary challenge is cost. I mean, if, if we could test every person three times a year, very likely there would be no problems here. Um, and, and I know people always argue you need to test. And, um, you know, the science says that, you know, you don't have a really good chance of that. Um, so if we could test more, we could catch more. Um, the other challenges are really um, how to, to blend in and out of meat testing. Um, I know a lot of organizations, and I know, and here's my first poke in the eye to WADA, um, a lot of organizations are leaning much more heavily on out of meat testing. Um, and, and our international affiliate being one of those, um, but the problem really is that if you are in a testing pool and you get tested three times a year, and the last time is two months before your major competition, you really have a pretty small chance of being tested in that competition. And so if your objective is to have clean records and for the people who are winning to be clean, um, a, a solely out of meat competition testing model isn't effective. Um, by the same token, as you said, out-of-meat testing is very expensive um, and probably three or four times more, five times more um, than doing an in-meat test. The advantages mm -hmm. of an in-meat test are everybody's there and all the equipment is there and the shipping is all in one drop ship and, yeah. and it, it arrives at the lab and it gets done quickly 
and have to meet testing. You have to send people out. They have to be able to get people. Um, they have to acquire the supplies. They have to ship it off as an individual drop shipment, um, which has to arrive at the lab the next day. And all of that runs into a whole bunch of money and, and resources. So how do you that's, decide? That's the biggest how do you decide uh, where to send those out of meat tests to and who to test? I know like if you're uh, like a top level athlete, if you're making the world team, you're probably really yeah, likely I, to, but to add on that question, I'll say from personal experience, you know, I was tested a lot more years ago and I feel like, you know, passing 20, 30 drug tests, combinations of in meat and out of meat, I'm tested a lot less now. Is, is there a focus on newer lifters? Um, trying to diversify the testing tip, um, tip offs. Yeah. Is, you know, like how does, how do you guys manage yeah. that? If someone wants to tip someone off, like, is that common? Like who do they even talk to if they suspect something? Yeah. Um, actually on our website, there's a, there's a contact if you want to report someone for using, but, um, and, and we take those things seriously. Um, in, in terms of how we decide to test people, um, what we really have done is look at the people who, who tend to fail for us more often. And, and obviously international failures are expensive for us. Um, they're going up to 2,500 euros a failure plus administrative costs this year. Um, it'll be about $3,500 for each international failure. Um, if we have Joe Cap and we have Joe Cap on the world team and we've tested you 35 times and, and you've never been even near the thresholds for failure, um, he's got low tests. He's got real low <laughs> tests. Yeah, I will say, you know, and that I've I've been tested less recently, and you know, my performances, at least you know, individually, I've kind of leveled off, and I've you know been tested a lot in the past. But you know, lifting against uh, lifting alongside, you know, maybe Kelsey McCarthy, who just recently, in the last few years, has really started breaking world records and stuff. She was being tested a lot more than me even though we were training in the same gym, they would show up to test her, whether it was uh, WADA from the international affiliate or a USAPL OMT, and they would test her and just walk by me and everybody else. And I was like, this is great. And and I get that. Um, but is, is there a risk, is there a risk in that, you know, and, and, and not keeping that I, I was in Adams for three years and I filled out my calendar every month, every quarter, and I never got tested once. So I think that was kind of a downfall of being in the, the Adams program as on the international side, I know you're, you're not in charge of that, but you know, the frequency is, is lower than I, I'd like to see. Well, I, I think that's a criticism in general. Um, obviously we, we'd like to test more, but to come back to your earlier question, just a second, um, you're not in the highest number of people who have been tested. So mm. there are people who've been tested more than a hundred times Oh yeah, going over decades. And, and I have to say that if they haven't cheated now, they're not very likely to. Mm -hmm. um, but you also asked about who are at risk and, and newer lifters to us are at risk. People whose performance changes dramatically are at risk. People who are in the second tier actually are much higher risk than people in the top tier. Um, mm -hmm. And, and people who um, get greedy at the end. Um, and, and want that one, one shot at one world record kind of thing, those people are at risk. So those are all the things that we track. Um, yeah. Alexander asked, um, who, 
we send the, the tests to that are out of meat tests. All our out of meat tests are water tests. Um, so, um, yeah, and that was kind of in response to some criticism from the IPF on our, our testing standards uh, around two years ago, where I remember not every test was a WADA test at some point. The majority of the tests that we do, we do about 3,000 tests in the USA powerlifting a year. Um, last year, we did a little bit more than 600 WADA tests, more than any other nation in the world, more than the IPF, mm -hmm. too. Um, but it, as, as we... Um, eventually agreed to disagree with them. Um, we think that there, there's a certain amount of testing that has to be done or you don't have a viable program. It's only an ornamental program. And really, if you if you look at the WADA model, and I've been openly critical of WADA, um, I still am, um, because their focus is on elite lifters only. And and so if you're in track and field and, and you're Usain Bolt, you're probably going to be tested um, but if you're winning the California state championship, there's zero probability you're going to be tested. Mm -hmm. um, if you're winning the NCAAs, you may be tested, but if you're third or fourth or fifth, you're never going to be tested ever. Mm -hmm. Um, so the WADA USADA kind of model is we test the very best of the best and we put a very small number of people, um, into a registered testing pool and everybody else be damned. Um, and, and that's not that's not our ethic. Um, mm -hmm. As 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 the American Drug Free Powerlifting Association, we started out with the idea that everybody would have a fair shot. Mm -hmm. And whether you're competing with thirty other people in the Alaska State Championship or whether you're competing at nationals, um, you you still deserve a clean platform. Yeah. Oh, and, and another question I had, and I've actually thought about a long time about our testing specifically, is I remember a couple of years ago, you know, WADA took um, basically the THD levels down that would make you a positive in an OMT, in an out of meat test. Um, so, you know, basically WADA was saying marijuana usage um, was okay out of meat, just not in competition. Um, but the USAPL left that, Test, that testing parameter in our out of meat testing to make sure we are covering athletes who are using marijuana recreationally. And I think a lot of people disagree with that. And we saw some high profile lifters fail a, a test that they wouldn't necessarily fail internationally out of meat, but they would fail that here and then lose their eligibility for our um, national teams. Can you speak to the decision of why you did that? And obviously, you know, from state to state, laws differ and things, and I think that's kind of where it got into a little gray area. Yeah, the, the issue of marijuana has been a thorny one for us, uh, both in terms of therapeutic use exemptions, we don't grant them, um, wow. and what to do with them. Um, the reason we don't grant TUEs is because marijuana is federally illegal. Um, and so we're in some legal jeopardy if we approve somebody for a TUE, and say, for example, they got popped for marijuana, then USA Powerlifting would have on the record them being okay with it. Mm -hmm. um, that's a that's a point of legal jeopardy for us. Um, but in in terms of rendering people ineligible, um, here's a difficulty um, with cannabis metabolism. Um, depending on how much you smoke, 
um, how frequently you smoke, how close to the meat you smoke. Um, you may well have not used for a week or two weeks or um, depending on some body constituencies, a long time and still pop a positive test. Um, so for someone who we um, catch with marijuana in their system and out of meat test, um, we don't suspend them. Um, but we also can't trust that they're not going to go and be positive international, and that has the same consequences as a steroid positive or something else for us. Yeah, and that's specifically for an in-meat, in-competition positive for marijuana, right, internationally? Because that's really the only... Yep. Okay. So it's it's based kind of on liability of having the potential for a failure international that you just don't want to uh, yeah. risk. Yeah, Larry, and I think that was probably when we had a like a cluster of international failures and you know we were, there was kind of some drama going on that we might not be sending international teams overseas if we had more failures yeah let me let me tell you about the consequences of international failures yeah, go for ahead. us um, so if you get an international failure the cost is going to be 2500 euros this year um, that's for your first one and for your second one um, what you lose is a placing on that particular team for that positive. When you get to three, then you run the, the risk. Um, the IPF constitution allows them to suspend us either totally or in part um, based on international failures. And if you, the fine is also 10,000 euros um, in addition to the other fine. But um, if you, if you, Basically, you give them the discretion to either suspend that whole team. If if we had a positive on the men's equipped team, they could, <clears throat> as a minimum, suspend the men's equipped team. But they could suspend all of the United States for a year. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their at the IPF history, there are a number of nations who have had national suspensions. Um, the fourth international failure um, within that one calendar year period. Um, offers the opportunity for the death penalty for that nation and a 50,000 euro fine, if not. So, wow. I remember a couple of years ago and getting emails from you, you know, as a member of the Federation and they were widespread emails to everybody. You know, we had a couple bench only guys and a couple master guys fail internationally in like a short period of time. And like, yes, are we out of the woods on that? And have we, had any and i haven't seen any international failures in a while like are we kind of clean and get a clean slate right now or are we still kind of under the gun with ipf and i know they're separate issues um, but well we, we haven't had um that density of international failures for some period of time and and that really corresponds i think to um the increase in our atomy testing program and heavily targeting people who are on our world teams and and particularly targeting people who have never been on a world team. Some of those people are tested um, more often um, than people who um, who we've tested a lot before. So uh, we've diminished our risk, I think, to some degree. Um, At the same time, um, and one of the things that we've discussed internationally at some length is that there really is not as much testing internationally as there once was. Um, but if there is going to be a target for testing, um, it's probably going to be us. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you look in, in terms of our success across all the teams, we're the most successful country in the world. Um, and that alone raises our testing profile. Yep. Do you think that, you know, I know there's issues and we don't have to go into the details because I think every member of the Federation has read through, you know, our issues with IPF drug test, well, their issues with our drug testing program. But do you think that there's been certain chess moves like uh, the Arnold World Records uh, being taken away or even last year's Arnold where we weren't able to have international athletes? Um, You know, do you? Do you think that there's there's just always going to be some type of animosity between our federation and our international affiliate? Yes, um, I do think so. And um, in in the, the previous podcast that you watched, um, I talked a little bit about xenophobia and um, the world political climate is such, and it's mirrored in the IPF that. Um, if, if you're an American, really, um, you're likely not as valued in some ways. I, I mean, it's one thing to be um, a successful competitor, but um, by the same token, um, we're, we are not well accepted in a lot of places, and um, the recent things with the pandemic are not going to help us be any more accepted anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, so there, so there's always an animosity. Um, there, um, if if really if if you want to understand um, what it's like to be discriminated against, um, go to Europe and deal with politics because um, you're immediately dismissed as as stupid and short sighted. Mm-hmm. They just think we're a bunch of rednecks and crazy yahoos or something, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, in, and in some ways, they're right. Though. I mean, look at Joe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, I was going to yeah. say, you know, our, as an athlete, and I've been to many international competitions, um, you know, and I just know that the other lifters on the teams, whether it be raw or open, we all have a great relationship with the other international teams and their athletes. And it's very friendly. We're all sharing information now in the age of the Instagram and internet. Um, so it's just it just seems like it's more at the politics level and the executive level, and not really in the ranks of the competitions. Because we all, it's you know, we all get along great with even teams that their culture is so different. Russians, Ukrainians, um, you know, Team Norway. Obviously, we have a great relationship with Germany, Belgium. Um, you know, ones we don't like Brazil, <laughs> but I mean, that, that is what it is. Um, but is that, is you think it's kind of isolated to the executive or it, 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 it am I just coming up kind of empty here? Cause I remember you told me, you know, no, don't get too friendly with the Ukrainians cause they'll disappoint you. Um, I, I think it's more political than not. And, you know, at the end of the day, athletes are still athletes and all still get along pretty well. And, mm-hmm. Um, and are supportive and, and, and that's, I guess, to the end of the day, why we all do it. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. It, yeah, it's... If, if, certainly not for the politics and it's certainly not for going to endless meetings and, um, all of that. It's, it's not for that. It's because we can be back in the warm up room and talk to our friends back there and, 
watch them lift and support them and they can support us. Mm -hmm. And, and even, and even Brazil, we visited Brazil frequently and um, historically have done really well and gotten along well with them. So um, at the end of the day, um, powerlifting wins out over politics. Yeah. I mean, after even after my closest run in with being suspended from the IPF at, in twenty seventeen, uh, because of issues with Team Brazil, I've made amends and I'm pretty friendly with all those lifters again. So, you know, the powerlifting does win out. Yeah. Um I mean I, I wanted to ask um a little bit more about the IPF and um there's a there's a committee in the IPF. Are you involved in that in in ongoings in the ipf what type of say do we yeah who, united and, states have? and as the u.s i know rob is involved a lot like are you our top international influence or is robert you know or, or johnny you know what who who is our like main voice internationally um both rob and i are on the ipf executive board um and and i was first on the ipf executive in 1999 um, for 14 really pretty uncomfortable years and stepped down um, and got re-voted in last year. Um, Rob is the IPF general secretary and has been, I guess, for about six or eight years. I can't remember exactly. Um, we both have a voice for us internationally. Um, the, but, but basically, we're only two. And um, powerlifting is a, obviously international, but uh, as, as voices on the EC, we're two of about 16. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Numbers way out yeah. at the end of the day. Can you give um, a temperature gauge on, I know there's a lot of talks. I know what I've heard is that Gaston Parage is very adamant that World Games should stay equipped um, and that if, you know, I think, you know, he'd probably like to keep the sport equipped if there was ever a bid for the Olympics. But I've heard that, you know, amongst the committee, there's a stronger appeal for having Raw eventually overtake it um, for World Games or if there was a bid for the Olympics. Can you give a, a sense of feel of, you know, what what your opinion is and what the committee, the committees is and, you know, what your prediction would be if there was ever a bid for the Olympics or where, where the world games will go in the future. What do you think of that? Well, the, the next coming world bank games will be equipped. Um, that much is clear. Um, and, and, uh, I think the people who advocate for the world games going raw are advocating based on the fact that they perceive that the IOC is going to like raw lifting better than equipped lifting. Um, there's no evidence of that. The, the IOC doesn't give a damn one way or the other. Uh, what they care about is viewership and um, drug testing status and um, sort of interest in the sport around the world. And, and honestly, whether it provides a fairly good show. Um, and, and I think powerlifting is a pretty good show, especially in the world games format. Um, what will happen in the future? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, internationally, um, up until last year, powerlifting was 50-50 raw and equipped. Um, it's, it's tilted a little bit more toward raw at this point. Um, I, I don't know what impact that's going to have. Um, some of us make the argument, if you're going to do it, you should do both raw and equipped. And 
and integrated that reflects the face of our sport. Mm-hmm. Um, Gaston has, has consistently supported equipped lifting as well. Um, and the uh, same thing is reflected in, in USA powerlifting, even though probably 90% of our lifters are raw out there on the local level. Um, we have equipped nationals and we have equipped world teams because at the highest level, it's still out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and unless something changes, that's not going to change. Yeah, I've seen some other federations do knee wraps only, and I know that we're looking into doing some new divisions for potentially trans or, um, uh, I guess, people people with other uh, disabilities disabilities divisions and so forth. Um, I'm curious if if uh, we would ever consider doing a knee wraps a knee wraps uh, raw, and if you think that would be a good idea if we were trying to promote kind of transitioning to equipment or I know there's a lot of challenges to equipment and you know, raw has been slowly overtaking it. And I guess I wonder if there's any ways to try to keep equipment alive or bring, bring more popularity yeah, to and, it. In my mind, like if you had to pick one format and you had to take all the lifters, if you can just say like, here's some knee wraps <laughs> and you, you have to lifts. meet in the middle, everybody lift like that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So I don't know what you think about that. You know, it's funny you mention that because when we initiated the raw division, I was an advocate for knee wraps in the raw division to begin with um, because it was a known quantity. Um, and the, the idea that um, raw lifting is basically non-supportive is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, if, if you have knee upper knee sleeves, there's an arms race in the knee sleeve business, right. To make them more supportive and still be legal. Um, so it's not the same as if you have nothing on your knees at all. Um, and, and we knew what the impact of perhaps were. Um, the other thing I argued and, um, I still continue to argue is there really is some therapeutic value to knee wraps. Um, if, if you look at those of us who have been out here a long time, it's 45 years for me. Um, and, and if you, we did a study and it was about five or six years ago now, sort of in the early one third of the life of raw lifting, but we wanted to look at sort of how long people were able to maintain sort of the elite level in raw versus equipped lifting. And it was almost twice the period of time in equipped versus raw, um, because honestly, raw wears you out. Um, and, a, and a good analog for us is in Olympic lifting. They, they really last at the elite level three or four years and they're finished. They're like NFL players. Mm-hmm. Um, the average, average lifespan in the NFL for a career is four years um, because of the liabilities they experience. And I think we're seeing a similar trend in terms of raw lifting. It's, it's hard on you physically. Um, and not just the fact that you don't have supportive equipment, but the raw training models are very different from ours and equipment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they consistently pound the heavy weights at 90% and above year round, year in and year out. And, and there are human physical limitations. I mean, you can't do that forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think there, there are probably good arguments for it. Um, I don't know ultimately if that will sell another division with rats, but um, it, it probably would prolong the life of a lot of raw lifters. 
Yeah. I mean, um, I know I know the USPA has it, right? Yeah, they have it. And I'm not a fan of having another division. I would just be a fan of making raw, I mean, making uh, knee wraps either optional, op- because they obviously they would optional, like just because you have knee wraps allowed, just like you have a squat suit allowed. You can compete without it. I would just like to see it become made available in our raw division so that you can have more crossover competition because then I'd be willing to do more raw meets because raw squatting, honestly, I think is, you know, the most dangerous thing for myself personally to do. That would probably have to happen at an IPF level, right? Yeah, I I guess. so, (laughs) So maybe we'd have to introduce it and show its popularity to get IPF mm-hmm. to adopt it, maybe. Uh, what, like, how would that even happen, I guess, is my question to Larry. Um, somebody would have to propose to the IPF executive that they allow wraps in raw. Um, I can tell you that um, if that happened, you would learn a whole lot about political lobbying in the IPF. Um, um, well, SPD, SPD makes wraps, so, you know, maybe they would be interested in... I, I think, I mean, I don't know all the raw lifters, but I would think that it would probably there, probably be accepted. I'm sure there would be people against it, but I, well, I my think argument it would be, would be the, the amount of energy they spend putting their knee sleeves on, it's it's almost the same as wrapping your knees. So I, I, would, I would call out anybody yeah. who was against it. Yeah, and at the end of the day, who doesn't want to lift a little bit more weight? I, like, I Raw think, lifters. No, I, I think it would be <laughs> No, accepted. they just like to complain about suits and shirts and say mm-hmm. it's cheating. They would be okay with wraps. I think yeah. they would be okay with wraps. I think that would be a legit, you know, that, that, that maybe, would be may, cool. That would be awesome. Maybe the Spicy PL pod can propose it. Um, well, it, it, the the interesting thing that would be a limitation in terms of wraps is make people wrap themselves. I mean, why 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 would you say that though, Larry? Like everybody has a coach. Um, I'm sure there there are coaches that do a lot of things for their lifters, like latch their belt tighter. You know, um, why not just have it just like equipped, like have a coach wrap your knees? I don't know. I think it'd be an easier for sell without. And, and if you think about it, I mean, there are limitations, purportedly, limitations on how tight your knee sleeves can be by the fact that you have to be able to put them on by yourself and not use suit slippers and all of that. I know that that's not the reality out there sometimes, um, but that's what the rule basically says. Um, if your knee sleeves are so tight that you can't put them on yourself, you can't take them off again, um, you can't have them. So, um yeah, I, I kind of want to. That's probably a, a, a reasonable. Yeah, some sort of governor on it. Yeah, I want to get back to something you said earlier. Is that uh, yeah. the U.S. the U.S. team or America is, is the most successful country in powerlifting? If you look at IPF, you know, wins and everything, and that is true. We win masters, raw and equipped juniors, raw and equipped sub juniors. Uh, we win female open, raw female open, male female open. Do you think? I think it is tougher for the equipped teams to get those wins. Um, And I think it comes, you know, at the highest level, our women are really successful in equipment, but our men are not so successful. Not, not that third place as a team is bad, but we haven't been able to win that team championship in a long time. Do you think that equipped powerlifting internationally is harder than raw lifting? Because that our, our most talented lifters are still having trouble winning. Um, no, I don't think equipped is harder, although 
Um, the things that have made Raw successful, I think, is essentially the number of people doing it. And um, I had an interesting talk with an Olympic lifter who competes internationally recently, and and they're not particularly successful internationally. Mm -hmm. um, although they'll be more successful as drug testing gets real for them. Um, but they're not so successful. And the reason that they're not successful, they think, is because they just don't have the elite depth. Um, that's the same problem we have in equipment. Um, in terms of elite equipped lifters, we don't have the same depth as we do in raw. And when you have that head-to-head -head competition among, if you go into a competition and any day five people can win, depending on the day they have, um, that makes everybody much better. Um, that's I, I think that's the weakness on the men's equipped side. Um, not not so much that um, competition internationally is necessarily harder, um, but that we don't have that push from behind. And if mm -hmm. taking Joe for an example, if if you went to a meet and the top ten people could all squat four fifty five. Um, any one of those people could also squat 475 or 505 or 515. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that's the, the push that we would have to have in equipment to dominate that division as well. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, our raw men, you know, will win six weight classes or five weight classes and have a, you know, a perfect score where our equipment, you know, we're, we're scratching for third place and, you know, obviously Blaine has recently been successful with two wins, but, um, you know, lifters like Newt Douglas or myself or Quentin Meyer, um, you know, haven't really been able to break through to that, to the win, you know, and, uh, you know, our raw lifters, our raw lifters easily win international competitions where we haven't had that success on the equip side. And I, I, I think your point makes sense is we don't, we don't have that depth, you know, maybe, Joe Capolino is not a representative of the international team. If there are ten other people like me or more genetically gifted like uh, uh, than me at nationals, so. Um, well, I, I suspect what would happen with Joe Cap is that Joe Cap would get better. Yeah, maybe people did, <laughs> people rise to the level of their competition. Yeah, honestly, I mean, um, looking at Priscilla as an example, um, when when she first totaled six hundred kilos in in usa powerlifting that was unheard of mm -hmm. and now there are numerous women that can do that in multiple weight classes and and that's sort of a, a reasonable standard for people yeah um, everybody got better not not just because someone came out of nowhere and and won um, everybody got better and i think that's what you'd see yeah, yeah. this is a good transition um we've got a sec section in our podcast that we call then versus now, right? And so this is kind of a hypothetical because the level of competition changes over the years, the equipment, the nutrition. And so we like to throw out a name from the past and a name from the present and then imagine that they, they were competing in the same era. And, and then I'd like to hear your assessment of who would win. So one of the biggest ones that we have is um, – well, this one, we, we thought about this one for a while, right? So this was uh, Taylor Atwood versus... Um, Wade Hooper. Wade, Wade Hooper. Hooper. Yeah, 
What do you think about that one? If you put them together, competing head-to-head in their primes, what do you think would happen? I think that um, there's there's a wrong quick question here, uh, sort of a factor here as well. Um, yeah, I think we'd have to assume that they were lifting raw. Um, I, I think that I would probably give the nod to Taylor um, not by far, but a little bit. And the reason is um, that that he tends to pull out a deadlift when he has to pinch mm. at the end. Um, yeah, Wade so, was a little weak in the deadlifts compared to Taylor. Yeah, we were talking about it. it's kind of with the bench and the and the and the squat. You could kind of go b- both ways, and and then the deadlift. Wade's got the disadvantage. Yeah. I, I, there's there's no question in my mind that Wade, um, in his prime, could probably outsquat and outbench Taylor considerably. Um, what we saw him do was lifting equipment, um, but he was enormously strong raw as well, and, and a generation ahead of his time strength wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised that you didn't go old school. And yeah. His challenge was in the death. I mean, he was built to squat and bench. Um, Taylor is a little bit better rounded. What's that? Oh, that's no. We yeah. we agree with you. We agree, yeah. but just by a hair. But we're I'm surprised that you didn't go with uh, Wade the old like old school. Um, the other one is uh, you know this is one we've talked about a lot is Mark Henry versus Ray Williams. You know there wasn't a lot of competition for Mark Henry, and he he uh, was very young when he stopped powerlifting and transitioned to Olympic weightlifting and strongman and all of that. If you if you pitted them against each other in competition and they were in the same era. Who do you think would come out on top there? Oh man, um, I lost a little bit of that question, but I think you're asking me to go head to head Mark Henry versus Ray Williams. Yep, um, that's correct. Yep. Um, it, and and in that, if I had to make a wild guess, um, I would go with Mark Henry, and and um. I say that I judge Mark Henry's first American squat record. Um, and I have to think about when that was 1987 or eight, maybe, um, 89. I don't remember exactly. Nice. You're getting into our Um, birth years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, and the reason I give just a slight nod to, to Mark, um, that lift counts, obviously he pulled 903 in a singlet. Um, and, and he pulled 903 in a single easy. Could have gone 950, I think, probably that day. <laughs> um, but um, but I also looked at the equipment he had. He lifted, equipped in the squat and in the bench. Um, and um, he could have worn his bench shirt for a night. Um, his, his squat suit wasn't tight and his wraps um, were at risk of falling off. Um, so his his best squats were done in equipment that was basically no equipment Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 mark never went on as far as he could have gone um i i think that um had he continued um he he probably would have exceeded all of the all-time equipped records for all um that's how strong he was then and and he's still really that strong honestly yeah He, he could come back and be competitive now yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we we agree. We've always gone with Mark, and I've seen some amazing videos of him, you know, doing the inch dumbbell and just crazy feats of strength. So I'd have to give it to to Mark too. Yeah. And I'm gonna make one up on the spot because I want to segue into talking about this lifter. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna go with Dennis Cornelius, who I know you know, um, versus Captain Kirk Korwaski. <laughs> And we could do it raw because I know we've seen Kirk's raw squats on video. I'd, I'd probably, I probably would go with Dennis. Um, and the reason wow. I'd probably go with Dennis um, is at the end of the day, um, he's a good bench presser. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them can squat a bunch um, on a good day. Um, Kirk was a really respectable deadlifter in, in um, the era he was in. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Dennis's bench would probably carry him by 10 kilos, maybe. Yeah, so I, I yeah, for the squat, you know, when, when Kirk does 800 for five, you know, I think you can basically call it a tie with um, Dennis, because I know Dennis is capable of almost 900 pounds, if not 900 pound raw squat. The deadlift, I think, is a tie also, because they both would pull in the high sevens. But what did Kirk bench raw, do you think? Because I know Dennis has done, you know, maybe 562 or 573 in a meet. A little over 500, I think. Oh, okay. Um, but I think you I think you undersold um, Kirk's squat some. Um, and Probably. When we used to travel, we, when we used to travel as teams, um, he was always scrounging up all of our old um, marathon gold line wraps. Because that's all he ever used, and they were never tight. Um, his suit was ridiculous; um, it was no suit. Um, so um, his his four fifty five squat was in minimal equipment. Um, There's really no doubt in my mind that he probably could have done that without any equipment. Yeah, or in a good set of knee sleeves. Um, so I think you sold Kurt short on the squat well i, I was saying uh, i think at least 900 raw but you know you're saying maybe more you know the video i reference is everybody's seen the thousand pound squat times two and the i want to hold it video but my favorite is the 800 for five completely raw nothing on his knees and it looks like he's wearing a bathing suit <laughs> 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 that's my favorite yeah. video of kirk and um you know when you met alex in chicago last year for the first time in person um I think you were maybe having some whiskey and you were telling some old Captain Kirk stories. So we want to just ask you what your funniest Captain Kirk story is. Well, let, let me say first that Kirk served as my assistant coach on the women's team for a number of years. And um, the, the reason was that he's a great assistant coach. And, um, you know, a lot of times as a head coach, you got to sort of herd cats and get your coaching staff to go to work and, and, show up on time and do what you're supposed to do and kick them in the ass because they're not doing things quick enough. And um, that was never the case with Kirk. And um, when we got up in the morning, I went off to go do the stuff that I was supposed to do as a head coach and check on the competition. And he'd go to the warm up room and I never had to ever go check. And when they called the first, first of our lifters up, um, Kirk would be standing there with that lifter in their gear and wrapped up and ready to go. And I never had to go look. Um, so, um, he was an essential part of the success of the women's team over all of those years. Um, 
one of the other things he did for the women's team, and and while this is not a problem internationally um, so much anymore, people always used to steal our stuff. And, and so you'd sit your stuff down in the warm-up room and some teams that I won't name would go steal your bench shirt and you'd get ready to warm up in the bench and you'd have no bench shirt. Wow. Um, or, they, or they'd steal all of your wraps but one and so you'd get ready to wrap your first set and you'd only have one wrap. Um, so oh, that's dirty. Um, one, one of the things that he did was serve basically as an enforcer for our team. Um, and honestly dusted up a number of people who, um, would have attempted to take our stuff. Um, and the other thing, and I, I mentioned this on the other podcast, I'm sure you listened to, but in the old days, the rules were such that. Um, if you couldn't get to the platform, you had to make your way to the platform. Um, and so um, if you timed out, you lost that lift. And if you didn't get your attempt in, you lost that lift. And um, not being the biggest person in the coaching area, um, for me, Austin had its disadvantages. And what Kurt often did for me was part of the Red Sea and lead me to the table. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes that involves some other people falling down um, one time through a plate glass window. Um, yes. <laughs> so this is the story we specifically remember from Chicago that another coach went through a, a glass window. Yeah. yeah so where know, where, where, fall down. where was that? People fall down sometimes. <laughs> I'd rather not say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suspect that I suspect that we still have some liability there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know what? I think I have a little bit of Kirk in me because, um, Larry, I, I've been to uh, like 11 collegiate nationals in the last 12 years as an athlete and a coach, and that's been a big part of how I got into powerlifting. But um, one of the things that anybody I've coached will tell you is um, bodies hit the floor if someone's in our way of a lifter leaving the platform or getting to the platform in wraps. Um, so I'm glad I can share that with Kirk. But um, – I guess we'll we'll segue into a little bit about collegiates. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that collegiates and high school nationals are the only two nationals left that aren't run by the federation. And I guess kind of the obvious opening question is: Is that ever going to change? Yes. <laughs> um, I think probably what you're seeing are the last years of non-federation run national events, mm-hmm. and and. We, we always knew why we wanted to go in that direction. Um, the pandemic has underscored why we wanted to go in that direction. It added another sort of liability to us. Um, but the, the reason we wanted to, to go in that direction to begin with is that um, if you look at, at how we arrange our national schedule, the test bed for all of sort of media related stuff is the Arnold. Then we export that to the other national meets. Um, our, our model, we're a nonprofit, obviously. We don't have to make money at national meets. We don't want to lose money, but we don't have to make any. So that gives us a whole lot of latitude to do things that that a private meet director, um, and, and to be perfectly fair, it's, it's, I understand why they want to make money because, I mean, who the hell doesn't? And mm-hmm. they're in business to do that, um, but we don't have to. Um, so... We can pay referees more, and we can have better food. Um, and jumbo screens, more can, more LED panels, more jumbo screens. 
exactly and more LED panels and <laughs> um, better equipment and um, better hotel support for the people who come and work 18 hours a day and um, we don't have to make that money and we don't have to to push as much of the cost of that off on other people yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah I think you know if you if you did listen if you ever did listen to our podcast the first episode ever you know we talked a lot about Steve Mann and people were talking badly about Steve Mann on the internet and you know we came to his defense obviously because Steve Mann's a great guy but we kind of had termed this funny phrase like oh Steve Mann is the most hated man in powerlifting and we think he's a good man and then about a couple more weeks in we actually went down to Steve's house and bought um a set of alico plates off them so you know obviously we're we're close with steve um that situation with collegiates where you know he was kind of put on the spot to give refunds and then on the other side of the coin johnny graham you know with high schools who you know both these meets were lost the pandemic there was never any discussion of refunds and you know i would just like to get your opinion on that because obviously like you know we're you know, I'm always going to support Steve. He's he's the first person I met in the USAPL. And so uh, I thought it was a little bit unfair, and, and we have you here now, so I figured I'd ask. But uh, what are your thoughts on the, the differences between how high school and collegiates panned out this year and their cancellations? Well, here's the, here's the funny thing. And um, obviously getting one side of the story, you're hearing that they weren't fair to me. Mm -hmm. um, but we treated both of those meet directors the same um, in terms of negotiating with their own clientele. Um, and um, oftentimes, if you're better with people and don't tell them to fuck off, um, <laughs> you're going to get a better response out of them, honestly, yeah. um, than you would otherwise. Right? I mean, let's face it. So... Um, each meet director, whenever you run a meet at any level, you have fixed costs and you have some costs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so if the meet gets canceled, um, you don't have all the money you once had. Um, if you take in $100,000 in entries, um, but you've already spent 75000 you have 25000 to give back. Mm -hmm. um, and how you, how you distribute that and how satisfied people are with that largely depends on you. Because um, everybody's taking a, taking a hit here in the pandemic, yeah, um, and pe people are losing their jobs and losing their houses and whatever. Um, people understand when you're when you're going broke, yeah. um, and um, you know how you how you package that and how supportive people are of you personally has a good deal to do with what kind of negative or positive press you get for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, that's, you say, you tell people to fuck off, you know, you're not going to get a good response and that's probably why I'll never be a meat director. Um, <laughs> but that's probably also why I get along with Steve so well. Um, it just seemed like Steve was getting a really bad reputation on the internet, um, over a lot of different things, coaching fees, no refunds, not having, uh, not contracting with Luis to provide a better production People all found out about that, and I think there was a group of raw lifters, you know, led by Sean Noriega, who just kind of wanted to drag Steve's name through the mud. And so, 
you know, I messaged Sean a lot and said, can you please take this down? You know, I'm not going to stand here and let you spread misinformation about Steve, who's a really good person. Um, You know, I just felt like the raw, you know, the raw part of collegiates and those kids were acting very selfishly. And I just think it brings us to a question is, do you think there's more of a sense in community among equipped lifters than there is in raw lifters? And this is something we've talked a lot about a lot about on this podcast is that a lot of raw lifters can train on their own where, you know, your gym and our gym, we train in these little teams, like these little regional teams. And do you think that's kind of attributing to the bad attitudes in, in our ranks and in younger lifters? Well, I, I think that that's one factor. It, I don't know if it's the biggest factor, um, but to answer your first question, yes, sir, there's a difference between raw and equipped lifters in terms of the sense of community. Um, and the way equipped lifters train is probably a piece of it. Um, but uh, another piece of it, and I think it's a significant one, is really the length of time that all of us who have competed equipped know each other. I mean, um, I first competed with Dave Ricks in 1985. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we've been going along together for a long, long, long time. Um, the period of time it takes to become a successful raw lifter is shorter than it is for an equipped lifter, I think. And, and the reason is basically you just don't go, you don't lift as much weight at the end of the day. And the progression probably is similar. Um, you get good at a certain kind of rate, um, but you're going farther and equipped. Um, so a lot of the people who are out there lifting raw are pretty new to us. Um, one of the differences too, I think, between raw and equipped is that because equipped lifters have been out here in US City powerlifting for so long, um, most of them have a whole lot of loyalty to the Federation itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if, if, if you have a raw lifter um, who comes to us and lifts in two meets and go to nationals, they, they don't really even understand entirely who we are yeah. um, and, and what our history is. And, and so that I think doesn't make for the same level of loyalty, but it also doesn't make for the same level of community either. Yeah. Um, the the last factor I think is social media, and um, you you jabbed me a little bit for not having watched your podcast, but um, but I don't tend to um, go out and search social media for things related to powerlifting for one reason I up to my ass and alligators in this swamp anyway. Um, yeah, too much powerlifting. That's, yeah, that's, that's one thing, but, um, but the social media has provided people with the opportunity to be experts when they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so a lot of the theme that runs through a lot of us who have been equipped lifters for decades, um, is that we just know each other. And if so, I have a question for Joe Cap. I just call you and ask you, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't post a question about Joe Cap out there for everybody to see. I just call you or mm-hmm. I email you when I ask the question. And, and, uh, and a lot of us are, I, I guess that makes us behind the times or old school or whatever. But, but since we all know each other, um, we go about it differently than they do, I think. Yeah. Um, I guess, are you optimistic then that in the future, the raw division will kind of develop into a similar community as we have for equipped 
um, as people have lifted in the Federation for longer. You know, I, I mean, you mentioned that a couple people lift for two meets and go to nationals and they don't really know what US, USAPL is about. And I see people posting, oh, I'm going to do a USPA meet. I want to use a deadlift bar, blah, blah, blah. You know, they don't really understand the, I, I guess, the, the federations and what we stand for. But as time goes on, you think, you think um, we'll see the same amount of community in RAW or do you think there's some inherent limitations? Um, your, your question broke up a little bit, but you were talking about community and raw, and I think that we're having it now um, among the elite lifters. Yeah. Um, because there are people who have been around a little bit longer, um, who have competed at the highest level for us. So I think that it, that's true. Um, for the for the rest of the people, um, the more they're involved, the, the more they're going to identify with us, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, we, we had a local but, meet. We had a local meet yesterday, and um, you know, I think there is a community starting to develop. We saw with Precision Powerlifting, there's a group in the Boston area. They've got a crew that all train together. Um, Odyssey Barbell, uh, yeah. Eric Lapont ha had some kids, and I'm starting to see the development of the community. Yeah, ba Rome. basically, it used to seem, Larry, like the equipped lifters and like our constituency, like our groups, and we were running the meets for the raw lifters to participate in, but they necessarily weren't helping spot and load or be part of that. And I think nationally too is if I looked at collegiates last year in Columbus, you know, there's a, there's 500 raw lifters, but, but there's 25 judges in the chairs for a session of raw and they're mostly equipped lifters that I know. Um, do you, you know, I think locally now we've seen the raw gyms are coming to help out and spot and load and run meets. Do you think that's happening nationally too? Is that yeah. these these raw lifters and coaches are now starting to get back to the sport where it's not just the equipped lifters like Scott Dobbins and Big Mike and you and Priscilla who are running these meets? I, I think so. And um, like I said, we did the Alaska State meet yesterday. Um, and Priscilla and I worked there, but a lot of the people who were there um, were from the raw community here. Um, so as, as the, as the community grows, I, I think the people volunteering grow as well. Um, the, one of the things you have to consider is that, um, most of our competition takes place locally. Um, most of it is raw and most of the people are fairly new. We have a high, a fairly high turnover rate of people year to year. Um, and so what the, the difference between people competing nationally and nationally includes both raw and equipped and people competing locally is um, people come to USA Powerlifting to compete in those national meetings and identify with USA Powerlifting. But at the local level, um, they're just buying a product. And, and what people want to do at the local level is they just want to compete um, close to home and, and in front of their friends and whoever shows up and pitches their tent and runs a meet, they're going to go to it. Mm -hmm. um, and the better time they have and the better meet they experience, um, the, the more consistent judging, the more fair shape they get, the more likely they are to come back. So what we're doing nationally is really different than what we're doing locally. Um, we're, we're being salespeople for powerlifting out there at the local level. Um, and, and, and the people are different. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Only, only if we can hook them, are we going to keep them? Yeah. 
It's a good point. I, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of on the topic of meat logistics. And so we'll, we'll kind of, we have a bunch of questions, but, um, you know, there were some issues last year with, uh, the equipment at raw nationals, you know, some lifters were under the impression that since the Arnold and open nationals had rogue equipment for everything, barbells, plates, and combo racks that, uh, raw nationals was going to be that way too. And it just didn't end up being that way. You know, can you speak to the, what the, if, if any, what the consistency of equipment will be at future national meets since they're all run by the Federation now. And, um, can you kind of speak about that issue with, you know, lifters kind of complaining and even contacting rogue about, um, the equipment at last year's raw nationals? Sure. Um, well, obviously we have the requirement to use all IBF approved equipment at the national level. Um, and, and we don't have any strong preference among that IPF approved equipment as long as it facilitates running the meat smoothly. Um, so we'd be happy to have an ER rack or an Alico rack, doesn't matter to us. Um, long we can run the meat smoothly. Um, Rogue's rack was really, in some ways, an early development rack, and so it had some limitations in um, our. Our feedback to them was um, for us to run it as a, on a national platform, it has to have ease of use for us and ease of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needs to be lighter and it needs to be faster for us. Um, because at the end of the day, if, if you run 300 attempts across that platform and each one is 10 seconds longer because of the equipment, at the end of the day, we're there two and a half hours more uh, mm-hmm. than we would have been otherwise. So um, we, we're still looking for efficiency um, in terms of equipment and, and Rogue has been very receptive to, to our input about how to make their equipment better. And, um, they've been a great sponsor for us, honestly. Um, and if, if they come back with something that, um, that facilitates the speed of the national meet, which we have to have, um, we'd be happy to use it. Um, honestly, I like their bench. I like it a lot, but, yeah. um, I think the bench the pad is great. The, the, yep, the whole, the whole, the whole package has to work for us in terms of of logistics, because um, we can't. When we're already running fifteen hours, we can't have three more. Um, our people would all drop dead, and they wouldn't come back, and then it would be no more nationals. Yeah. So you know, obviously, I think the bench is the main selling point of the Rogue. You know, I love benching on it. The two, you know, two meets in twenty nineteen. Um, but I will say that the uprights of it, they're much bigger and bulkier than an Elico or ER rack. And, you know, I squat with the racks in and, uh, after both meets, I noticed that I had swelling and bruising up and down, uh, my forearms from coming back into the rack with a thousand pound squat. And, you know, the spotters are getting you in and it's a successful attempt. So nothing went wrong, but you're, you're just banging into that rack, which is pretty bulky. Um, three times and that was my main issue with that and then blaine got skewered yeah blaine almost got cut in half by a thousand pound bench because <laughs> the safeties didn't work correctly <laughs> well the safeties didn't go high enough yeah, yeah. They, they wouldn't even save me so they were really so, low so what you're saying is that you, you think that rogue back rogue rack will be back in a, in kind of a different sleeker look at some point because i know they are a big sponsor so i think people assume usa usapl and rogue are you know kind of a package deal as far as equipment yeah, I'm sure they will. Um, 
I know they've already redesigned the safeties. Um, and, you know, they're interested in doing this. And um, powerlifting is a, is a huge market for them. Um, you can see it in terms of the number of bars and weights they have out there now. Yeah, they've been sold out um, since March. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so but they want to cater to this community, and, and they're, a, they're a good company. They're a sponsoring company. Uh, I think they will. Yeah. I, mean, I don't see any reason why not. We did shop around for combo racks for our home gym um, due to the pandemic. And, you know, obviously we live in Boston, it's an urban area, and, you know, gyms, you know, we're still not back at our gym. Um, and one of the main factors of we didn't go with the rogue rack was it didn't seem like it had made all the changes that we expected, only some, like the safeties redesigned. So I think they, they could have benefited if they made some of the changes earlier because I think a lot of people bought combo racks this spring. Yeah. We were close. Well, you know, they have a lot going on, yeah. honestly. And, um, their, their business has increased significantly due to the pandemic. Um, they're just trying to, they're just rowing the boat as fast as they can, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, like staying on topics of meat logistics, you know, we heard you talk extensively about prime time and potential, well, not really potential, the, the, the constraints of going to ESPN with a, with an edited version of our raw primetime. You know, our main question is, you know, I've seen primetime at collegiates done by Josh Rohr, and obviously he did it at Raw Nationals 2016, but I think we, we saw it first at collegiates 2015. It was canceled. <laughs> primetime was canceled at 2015 collegiates. Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh, well, that was the first time I had heard of it. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think that that will get to other meets at some point? And, you know, even if it's not on ESPN, you think there would ever be an edited package of our primetime lifters, you know, on YouTube or on a stream or on another kind of channel? You know, like the closest thing I can think of is, you know, World Games on the IOC channel. Like, obviously, they edited, it, edited that and put color commentary and instant replay in and, and put out a nice little product that was fun to watch. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I think there's a good opportunity there in just editing the content and just putting it on YouTube, even just uh, yeah, because YouTube's the next. You know, it is it is probably bigger than ESPN, right? So the question is, will we ever do that? Sure. Um, yeah. Will we go to ESPN? I I doubt it unless we have a significant donor. Um, but mm -hmm. we we have all the content from all of the prime times and all of the meets for that matter. Um, we could do that anytime. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just needs people to do it. Yeah. And do you, I mean, I, I didn't hear you talk about this, but I know one of the challenges of prime time is, um, having doping control and referees at nine, 10 o'clock at night, um, for a third session. Is, is that something is that something that um, is an issue with prime time? Is uh, having, you know, having to extend your staff to cover that, and including doping control at late hours of the night? Um, I, I think the liability is is not um, in in terms of doing it late because people will come whenever, whenever. Um, the The problem really is how long is it, and and if if the meat starts at 6 a.m. and prime time doesn't end till midnight, um, then you've got staff on the clock for 18 hours. That's the challenge. Not not getting them to come to prime time because people want to do that anyway. But 
Um, it's, it's just um, how well we can manage their time. Um, our, our tendency is to uh, try to expand platforms so that the day doesn't go too long. Mm -hmm. um, and then we run into limitations of, of space and equipment and that kind of thing. But um, our, our perspective is to have the most platforms we can manage um, to make them be shorter. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I've been to some meets. I've seen some, I've been around nationals 2016 and I just remember how long the days were yeah. and that has to be brutal to be staff. Yeah. Well, we're getting up on almost an hour and a half. Um, there's a couple things that we still want to touch on, right? Some fun, some fun segments. Um, so Larry, we've got, we've got something called our OG hall of fame. So, um, we've inducted a, a couple of hall of famers from just over the years that we think deserve to be in our OG hall of fame. One of them uh, is Dave Ricks. Mm -hmm. We've got Bonica Brown. Yeah. Chen Wei Li. Chen Wei Ling. We have um, Alexi Baikov. Alexi Baikov. Um, we wanted to give you the opportunity to nominate an OG into our Hall of Fame since you've got so much, um, you know, knowledge in the history of powerlifting. You know, who who deserves to be up there next to Dave Ricks in in our OG Hall of Fame and Bonica? Um, Giving you the opportunity here to add to our Hall of Fame. Jojo White. Jojo White? Yep. <laughs> You're going to have to give us a little bit. Uh, I, it's actually, I consider myself a bit of a historian, but I don't really know. I, I've never really heard of Jojo White. Um, he was a guy who lifted in, <clears throat> in the 60s. Um, and he was actually the first person to squat a thousand. Um, in, in his work boots and, um, in his singlet and, and ace bandages. Nice. Um, so, um, he also, um, you mentioned the 1988 and 89 lifetime meets. He coached me at those meets. Um, when the APA signed on, um, he signed on with us as well. Um, and, um, he, he's from upstate New York, um, and um, when when the original founders of the ADFBA said we're going to do this thing and um, clean up powerlifting, he was one of the first guys to sign on, um, and he lifted with us um, into the nineties, I think. Um, but I would nominate him because he was forty years ahead of his time. So is what you're saying that the, the whole story that was, you know, documented in power unlimited about Dave Waddington and Lee Moran, you're saying that's just unequivocally not true that Jojo white actually was the first person to squat a thousand pounds. Yep. That's awesome. 1969. Wow. That's amazing. That We're making amazing, history. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people reference that segment in power unlimited, um, which I hope you've seen cause I think Priscilla was in it, but, um, yeah, it was. Yeah, that you know, people a lot of people give either Dave Waddington or Lee Moran credit for that <laughs> feat, but um I think we're definitely taking that from you that Jojo White achieved that. Um you know, and I think a, gen a generation ahead of him. Yeah, it probably just wasn't as well documented as it could have been. Um do, do you have I I know you talked a lot about Dave Ricks on King of the Lifts. Is is he 
you know, your favorite lifter of all time, or is there someone else that you would put up there as like your favorite lifter to be around or watch or, you know, who you thought was the best that you've ever seen? I, I think probably Dave is, and um, n- not only because he's really good, um, obviously he's been winning for 35 years, but um, the fact that he's been here for 35 years yeah, um, and, and, and he's proven that, um, that you can continue to be elite and you can continue to lift the weights that guys 30 years younger than him are lifting off into their sixties. I, I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I, yeah. yeah. Do, do you think it would be a, you know, in Dave Ricks then or versus Dave Ricks now? <laughs> Who, Who would, would win? win? <laughs> the, the, do I think there's a difference between Dave then and Dave now? If yeah. you put them, if you put them head to head, who would win? Because <laughs> he seems like Dave he's gotten now. better. Yeah, Dave now Dave is like now. stronger than Dave. It's then. insane. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I think we we'd be remiss to you know have you on and not ask you about um the you know some inclusivity and diversity in the USAPL. And, you know, I think you made a great point is that as far as, as race and people of color, I, I always thought the USAPL did a great job and it did a great job by just not having barriers because, you know, the meets are so diverse and the representation there was so great. But um, I think the main issue is uh, the future of trans lifters. And I don't know if I we heard this correctly, but it seemed like, you know, we're thinking about adding a division to include trans lifters at uh, local and regional meets is that the kind of where we're at right now yeah we're we're uh, actually about done with it although we've been distracted by other pandemic related problems um, but we're going to launch a non-binary division um, and the, the reasons for it are and, and as I said in the King of List podcast um, the, at the end of the day um, there really are differences um, in our sport, and and we've sort of taken a meaningful approach to try to understand what those differences are between men and women in powerlifting, and uh, also said several times, you know, if we're looking at long distance ocean swimming, women are better at that than men, and um, if if you were a trans woman, it wouldn't make any damn difference um, because women are going to win every time anyway. Um, who cares? But in powerlifting, it isn't that way. And and the things that the sex-based differences are really significant, honestly. And um, if you look at the performance of men versus the performance of women, and we looked at the whole IPF database in doing that, um, the, the differences are significant. And you can't overcome them um, just by removing testosterone from someone. Um, and that's really the argument of the trans community. If we lower our testosterone for a year, then um, all the differences wash out. We don't believe that to be true. Um, so at the end of the day, <clears throat> we really are looking at a different constituency, we think. Um, and and why not let them lift here? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that was one of the first things I said is like, you know, if, if there's a separate division, especially locally and regionally, you know, that would be great. And, but you know, a couple follow up questions I think are important is, do you think that's something that their support group is going to accept, you know, not being able to compete in the open division, 
but being able to be welcomed in their own division. Do you think that that's something they're even interested in? Because from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like they want to be secluded into their own division. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. And in fact, there was a, an article in the New York Times this week and, uh, about transgender inclusion in sports. And to cut to the end, the conclusion is you're not going to make everybody happy no matter what you do. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's going to be true for us as well. Um, but what we do know is that um, what you see out there are the opinions of really the most vocal uh, of, of their advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you don't see and what we do see more of are um, people who understand the differences. And um, we've communicated with a number of trans women who say, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to be fair. Um, so yeah. some people will be happy with it and some people who won't. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's it's the same argument we have with people who want to wear multiply and we say you can't do that here and they're not happy about that, but that's, that's the way it is. Um, and I want to have testosterone supplementation in USA powerlifting and and we don't allow that and they're not happy with that. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can't make everybody happy. And at the end of the day, what we're really, we're really trying to do is level the platform, just like we started out 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, and give people a fair shake. Yeah. And, we don't think women will have a fair shot um, when trans women are in their division. Yeah, yeah. I think the vast and, majority. And I know that argument by some people is. Go ahead. Yeah, I think the vast majority kind of agree with that, and I think you know it's not coming from any place of hate. It's it's we want to lift with everybody. We want to be inclusive to everybody. We want to give everybody the fair shake, but you know when there's yeah. certain things. I think it's important that Larry mentioned that women yeah. are a protected class yeah. as well. Yeah, it's um, I, and I think the vast majority uh, do kind of agree with this, um, but we do want to lift with everybody, and we want to we want to give everybody the opportunity to lift alongside. So, I, I think it's a good idea. Same, yeah. Same thing goes really with some of the adaptive divisions that we're going to launch when the world gets more normal again. Um, you know, some of their um, physical limitations don't allow them to per- do the per- rules of performance in a manner that would get them passed. Um, but it doesn't mean they can't come here and have a good time. And and we're, we're wrestling with the issue of scoring um, because of the various types of disabilities people experience. But um, at the end of the day, if we can get them on the platform and, and make them a part of us and have them enjoy powerlifting, then why not? I think that's great. Yeah, I, I think we have. Yeah, I think we have a just a couple more questions as we're so we can so, bring bring you the home stretch. Um, you know, we're planning on attending an event run by Ellis McLean and Bryce Lewis called Lift Together 2020 in September in Fort Collins. Um, and you know, I'm I basically we want to go and participate because I think it's important to those two gentlemen to support their charities of either, you know, diversity and people of color and some of the social injustices we've seen in 2020 and obviously before that. Um, and then also mental health awareness and that's kind of Bryce's thing. Um, and also Natalie Hansen's involved. Uh, just real quickly, are you aware of that event and, and that, that that's going on? Yeah. 
Uh, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, because I struggle with this, um, just the breadth of people that were invited, whether they were USAPL or not other feds or they had failed drug tests before, um, things like that, and kind of like the co-mingling. It's kind of seems like it's going to be like a mini Arnold, at least a very smaller version, not saying it's going to be that many people uh, in this pandemic kind of environment, but that what do you think about our athletes like say like you know athletes like bryce natalie myself ls you know uh world you know constant world team members being around you know ben pollock or steffi cohen or ed Cohn or people like that is that an issue to you in or do you think that you know that's really not a problem i, I don't care who you're friends with and what you do with them um at the, the day um they the only downside, I think, and there's obviously the political downside. If you go and compete against somebody who's suspended for a drug testing suspension, under the IPF anti-doping rules, there are liabilities for you. Um, we have difficulty. I mean, we don't tell people you can't go compete in another federation because that's not our ethic. Um, but you need to know that you are exposed to some liabilities. At the end of the day, though, the, the biggest downside, I think, um, to um, what ultimately end up being comparisons are that um, here's the sort of the running argument, steroids don't work idea, but that's BS. Um, steroids actually work, and um, if you use them, you get stronger, and knows that who does anything in strength sports at all. Um, so the downside for you is that there are the inevitable comparisons. Yes, but you weren't as good as the guy who failed. Well, yeah. no, I, no, I didn't lift as much as the guy who failed. However, um, I did it this way. Um, but you're still going to get those same kind of comparisons. They're, they're the same comparisons that occur, occur between um, people who live single ply and people who live multiply. So and so squatted twelve hundred and fifty pounds, um, and therefore he's the best squatter in the world. Yes, but you no, know, he didn't walk it out, and he was in multiply. So that's a different thing, um, and people can't wrap their head around that whole "that's a different thing" aspect of it. Yeah, I've always uh, wondered about that. I've seen a lot of our lifters, you know, be really you know, friendly on social media with lifters who really aren't in the, the same kind of business of lifting or, and, and then, and then open up these comparisons, you know, like at this event, Ian Bell, myself and Greg Johnson and a bunch of other people will be deadlifting, but we'll also be deadlifting next to a guy named Callier, Callier Woolham who deadlifts a thousand pounds. And, you know, obviously he lifts untested. And so I think it does, I'm glad to do it, especially in exhibition format um, and I have no problem with it, but I think it will put a little bit of damper on how talented, you know, say Ian is, who might be the best natural deadlifter in the world, um, body weight wise, but you know, you, you won't be able to, to see that and how special he is, but you know, it is an exhibition, but you know, I, I ex get exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think one, you know, in, in, go ahead. In, in terms of, of sort of the relationship between our respective communities. Um, you probably noticed that the Arnold I introduced the president of the XPC and he did the same to me mm -hmm. um, down there in their venue and 
I, I got a standing ovation in the XPC venue. Um, and at the end of the day, all still lifters and in as much as we support each other, that's probably good. Um, yeah. We, we prefer them to stay in their lane and us in ours. And, um, and, and, but it doesn't mean that we can't be supportive of each other. I mean, that the whole idea that we're going to jab them in the ass over, um, whatever it is they do in terms of equipment and other things, um, stupid. There's, there aren't that many of us. Uh, why would we do that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I think one of the last things we want to ask you is just, you know, you've been, you know, I think you said 45 years in the sport and you've uh, lived through a lot of rules changes, um, doping changes, lifting rules changes. Um, is there anything specifically you'd like to see changed any rules you'd like to see change, whether it be lifting or not, like lifting your head on the bench or the belly bench rule or, um, you know, things like that. What, what, what would Larry Melee like to see change in the USAPL and IPF if, if you had the choice? I, I actually like the rules as they are now. Um, provided they stay the same. What I, what I hate worse than anything is um, a whole bunch of armchair quarterbacks changing rules that have been in existence for a period of time and everyone's adapted to them. I hate that. Um, it just makes it a different sport. It's like going from American rules basketball to international rules basketball and then changing again in two years and again in two years and it, it makes chaos of the sport and it takes away comparability. I just like them to stay the same. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to smite the people with the hand of God who keep putting in dumbass rule changes every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems like a fun meeting yeah. I'll never go to. Um nationally yeah. and internationally. Nope. <laughs> um I, I don't see the point. Yeah. You know, there there are really only a couple of significant rule changes in terms of performance of the meets themselves that have ever occurred. Um, and I like it the way it is now. The first of them was when they put the squat before the bench. Um, and that happened in the 60s. Um, and the other was going to the round system, which was really the best thing to ever happen to powerlifting. Yeah. Um, no more ascending bar. Yeah, it was horrible. And I, I went to a meet and it was, I guess, in, God, I don't know, maybe 1981 or two or something. And I weighed in at seven o'clock in the morning and I pulled my last deadlift at 1 a.m. the next day. And you can't compete that way. It was terrible. Yeah, it sounds like a good way to oh. get injured. Olympic lifting hasn't learned that yet. <laughs> Yeah, there there's some weird downtime in Olympic meets. It seems like uh, because with the the system they're using, where it's ascending bar, and then the amount of changes coaches can put in to kind of buy their lifters' time if they're following themselves, it seems like there is some downtime there too. And maybe that's why they don't sell tickets at the Olympics. Who knows? Well, it's it's uh, one of the things you have to consider is that whatever sport you're in, it has to be entertaining for people. And if most of the time they're watching an empty venue and listening to a guy announce um, 15 different bar changes, that's not exciting. Mm -hmm. I, I can say, though, that having been to IWF Worlds, um, when, when the big guns are actually lifting and it happens quickly, it's exciting. But that's not most of it. And 
And, and I think the progressive bar system is a big reason for that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I've, I've seen some meets run with the round system, weightlifting meets. Those are much better. I, I mean, they're better for the athletes because they know when to warm up and they know when they're going to come up and they get a consistent amount of rest. And I think they perform better, but I don't ever see weightlifting doing it. Yeah. I don't know how I would be able to do a meet in equipped squatting um, without the round system. It would be pure chaos. So Peach would have a hard time handling me. <laughs> I would probably be in worse shape than you. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just want to, you know, as we um, move towards, you know, we're not going to see national meets until 2021. I think one of the questions we had was do you see national meets? getting moved off the regular schedule in 2021 because of the pandemic. And, you know, I saw the IPF calendar already that all the world meets are in the second, you know, quarter three and quarter four of 2021. Um, and does that just a follow up question on whatever your answer is, is do you see that as an opportunity to maybe combine open and raw nationals? Because I think it would be really interesting to get everybody in one room at a national meet at some point. And I think other countries do their nationals that way as well. So, I, I think that we are we have our fingers crossed, and we're hoping the vaccine comes along and we're up and running again in 2021. Um, I think we will probably, at least at the rate we're looking now, push back national meets that are early in the year. Um, don't want to, but depends. Um, the Arnold is considering moving the Arnold back too, so um, it kind of depends what happens. Uh, um, we've talked about consolidating national meets a number of times, and um, it, one of the things I like about Raw Nationals is the fact that there are so many people there, and it really is a festival of strength. Um, I'd like to see us do more of that kind of stuff because, you know, when you go to a meet and there are 200 lifters there and you lift for three days, what you don't get is 750 people sitting in the crowd watching because they're going to lift tomorrow. They lifted yesterday or whatever. I'd like to see a lot more of that. And um, I'd like to see a lot more um, cross pollination between raw and equipped lifters, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, everybody that we ever put in gear loves it. Um, and when I teach coaching courses, the one of the things I say to people is that most of the year we're raw lifters anyway um we we tend not to train as heavy as as people who compete only raw but most of the year we do lift raw so mm -hmm. um there's a whole lot of similarities going on that i think are are not well highlighted because nobody's ever around to see it yep all right well do you you guys have any last questions for larry I mean, there's a segment we didn't cover, but I don't know if we're going to get any traction on it. Yeah, I thought you had listened to the pod before, Larry, and uh, we do a segment that's called Who's Hotter? <laughs> and it's lifters, known, known drug users, or people who have failed tests. And uh, we basically give you um, the choice. And we'll just try one with you because it's our most popular one. And I don't think you'll have a problem discussing these people. Do you want to do it? <laughs> he'll be familiar with these two a hundred percent i guess you could give him the option if, he, if he'd like to do it yeah we, well i'm just gonna do it then david hoff <laughs> versus eric lillibridge who burns through the cup first yeah 
I'll be damned if I know. I, I would hate to be the cup, though, because I think it's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's perfect. I think uh, that's probably as much of a answer we're going to get out of Larry on this yeah. topic. Um, so, you know, we've had you for almost two hours. Uh, we want to thank you. I think, I obviously think we had a much more colorful conversation than the other podcast you did. And we appreciate you opening up with us on all this stuff. Um, you know, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday and tell Priscilla, we said hello and we expect to see her back on the platform soon. Will do. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate it, Larry. Thanks a lot. This was awesome. Thanks, Larry. All right. Take it easy, Larry. Yeah. Listen to the pod. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. All right. Take it easy, guys.